Now, actually, I'm going to talk about uh, um, uh, the the other side of the hill only in terms of of um, both the project that I helped to uh, co-write, which uh, is now out. Uh, a shortened version of it is in the uh, Foreign Affairs, uh, recent, most recent Foreign Affairs. Uh, took a section of, of our report. Uh, um, the report is available either um, uh, <clears throat> by attempting to get it through the GPO or online you can get it, or you can wait and pay a large price uh, to the uh, uh, Naval Institute Press, which is putting out a commercial version, which I will get no money from. So uh, I, I really don't want to sell that one too much. Um, what I want to talk about is is the larger framework within which that uh, project uh, took place uh, and uh, the larger project, which uh, I'm now involved in with a group of, uh, of uh, uh, colleagues at the Institute for Defense Analyses, along with my regular daytime job right now, which happens to be visiting professor at the United States Naval Academy uh, in Annapolis, where I'll be f for another uh, two years. Uh, but I'm still connected and working for IDA. Um, I don't know how many people were here last year, but I started off by, uh, and my la talk last year was on the uh, uh, um, post-conflict phase and the miserable performance uh, 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 that uh, um, both civil and, I think, military uh, uh, performed uh, during that phase. I told a story uh, called The Frog and the Peach. I'm going to tell again because I think it reflects, again, my sense of, of our incapacity to learn from history. Um, Dudley Moore, Peter Cook, two wonderful English comics. Um, unfortunately, both of them are now dead. Probably the great comic comic. Uh, 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 geniuses of the 20th century, if you follow British uh, comedy, um, did a skit in the early uh, uh, 1970s called The Frog and the Peach, <clears throat> in which uh, Peter Cook uh, owned uh, a uh, restaurant located in the middle of the Yorkshire Bogs, um, had this wonderfully arrogant, upper-class, uh, Etonian, uh, Oxford accent, maybe Cambridge accent, uh, 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 the name of the restaurant was the Frog and the Peach. Because it was located in the Yorkshire bogs, uh, there was no difficulty in, in parking. There was only a difficulty in extracting the cars afterwards. Um, uh, he was uh, interviewed by Dudley Moore, who was uh, the food, food critic for the Times. <coughs> um, I, to sort of set the stage, you can understand uh, 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 the full... Uh, genius of this. There were two dishes that this restaurant, the Frog and the Peach, served. Um, the first was uh, frog a la pêche, a giant, a giant frog brought to your table with a peach in its mouth and boiling Cointreau poured over it. And the second uh, uh, wonderful dish was uh, um, uh, pêche a la frog, a giant peach brought to your table with boring, boiling Cointreau poured over it, and when you cut it open, tadpoles swam out. Um, for about 10 minutes, the insanity went on. Is your wife a well woman? No, my wife is not a well woman. We lower her down the well, kicking and screaming to feed the frogs. Uh, <coughs> uh, but at the end of it, Dudley Moore says, well, have you learned from your mistakes? And I think this pretty much sums up the performance of the United States government uh, uh, and perhaps all of human history, but certainly from my current experience with the U.S. government the uh, uh, last 10 years, I think it says a great deal. Um, Peter Cook pauses and he says, yes, uh, 
He says, I have studied my mistakes from every point of view, gone over them again and again, and feel fully confident I can repeat every one of them. Uh, One of the things that I argued in my first book, The Change in the European Balance of Power, in the conclusion, which upset, by the way, a large number of academic uh, reformers who've never done anything but work uh, uh, in uh, academic uh, uh, life, was that incompetence rather than competence is the basic uh, basis of human life. Uh, And what I'm going to tell you in terms of the Iraqi Perspectives Project, I think actually is a very interesting study on both in both competence, how much of a, a difference a single individual can make, as well as on the opposite side, how much uh, of uh, of uh, um, uh, <laughs> how much just plain incompetence can screw things up. The Iraqi Perspectives Project grew out of uh, um, the group I work for in D.C. The Joint Advanced Warfighting Program's role. Uh, in looking at innovation and change uh, in the American military. The mere fact that it was set up suggests at least some people have competence. Um, And then uh, in 2002, early 2003, we were detailed, because we have a number of serving officers, we were detailed to participate in the Iraq War and do a lessons learned of, of, if you will, the performance of joint headquarters and, and if you will, joint cooperation uh, in the war. So a number of our military and civilian analysts were spread throughout uh, 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 joint uh, elements of the effort of the, in the war against Iraq uh, in 2003, spring 2003. Uh, and they did an extraordinary job. Uh, the report that we eventually came up with, um, unfortunately, is still classified. It will be probably classified for another 20 or 30 years because it does criticize some general officers. And goodness gracious, we can't criticize general officers uh, um, and make the uh, poor uh, um, uh, junior officers and enlisted swine think that there was incompetence above them. Um, but but uh, um, very useful intelligence study that I think is unfortunately probably going to be deep sixed. Um, but there was a spinoff from that study that reflects uh, one of my colleagues, who I one of the most competent and intelligent Army officers I've ever run into, a lieutenant colonel named Kevin Woods, who in summer of 2003 was the only person in all of the vast number of American officers and headquarters uh, um, in Iraq or in the Middle East who said and suggested that that it might be very useful, since we were looking at this war, to take a close look at the war from the Iraqi point of view and see what they saw and what they didn't see and and how the war looked from their point of view, what they... um, uh, actually uh, might have done well. They did actually a few things well. Um, what they did badly, why they did badly, what we uh, uh, did to them that worked, uh, and what uh, didn't work. Uh, and largely because of his uh, uh, efforts in the summer of 2003, persuaded uh, uh, the commander of Joint Forces Command, Admiral uh, Giambi Astiani, uh, and his immediate boss, um, uh, that this was a really good idea, and the Iraqi Perspectives Project was born really due to the imagination and drive of one individual. 
Now, what makes this particularly important is that I think as all of you, or some of you may be aware, the United States government captured all of the Iraqi documents um, that uh, were still in existence when the government fell. And all of this stuff was then shipped out uh, from Saddam Hussein's various offices and headquarters and the headquarters of the Baathist Party, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to Doha, where it now sits in a huge warehouse, um, where nobody in the United States government, military, intelligence, uh, information operations, uh, has shown the slightest inclination to look at this stuff or interest in looking at this stuff, because it's history, it's over, uh, except for us in the IPP. And because we began this project to look at the war from the Iraqi point of view, then we felt uh, um, once this stuff began being put on a very large da database, uh, not officially classified, but uh, a strange category that the U.S. government has right now called F. F-O-U-O for official use only, which means that, in fact, nobody can look at it uh, um, uh, um, except people with security clearances. Um, this stuff began to appear in late 2003 and early 2004 on a very big database called the Harmony Database, which we had access to. Uh, and as the stuff was put on the Harmony Database, uh, um, and looked at by the um, uh, individuals that were putting it on the database um, uh, with very sort of brief descriptions, we grabbed onto that this documentary source was of enormous interest uh, uh, and of uh, enormous importance both for our project and for other projects. We got money out of Joint Forces Command and some other sources uh, in the government to start translating these documents that look particularly interesting to us. Although, again, you've got to understand this is a completely hit or miss. Uh, um, for example, some of the the transcripts, and let me sort of run through the, the documentary sources because I think this is, again, a very interesting comment on, on how we've regarded this. Um, no real archivists. Um, were provided by the U.S. government to, to archive or to set up a, an archive of, of this stuff until really um, the last uh, couple months when the National Archives finally got interested in it and actually saved us from the dreadful lawyers because the dreadful lawyers who know no history either decided that all this stuff belonged to the Iraqi government was going to have to be re returned and we couldn't photograph it or use it. Uh, and then the National Archives came in and said, well, you know, there was World War II and we have what happened in World War II with the Japanese and the German documents, and we didn't return it to the Japanese and the Germans till after we photocopied it all because actually we own it also. And the lawyer said, oh, oh, okay, there's a precedent then. Yeah, it's called history. Uh, <clears throat> um, and so actually we were, we were saved by the National Archives from really doing something stupid. What this stuff consists of, of course, is the normal documentary bureaucratic uh, paperwork of military and political organizations, Baathist Party and government official uh, uh, non uh, the government of Iraq, which is separate 
from the Baathist Party, all their communications, all that stuff, sort of stuff, which is really interesting and in many ways resembles, of course, the captured stuff we got from the Germans and Japanese after the Second World War. Huge amounts of stuff. Um, and again, the difficulties um, for any historian and working in the 20th century is, uh, and they're going to be even worse in the 21st century, is the infinite capacity of modern bureaucracies to gin out unbelievable amounts of garbage and useless stuff, in between which is stuck really useful and insightful documents, which when you begin to put the pieces together, tell you very interesting stories. And I'll cover some of the stories uh, later in the talk. Now, the second part of this trove is even more interesting because it gives us um, uh, a brilliant insight, I would argue, set of insights into the nature of Saddam's regime. Beginning in 1979, the great man figuring that he was going to count in history at the level of Stalin uh, and Hitler had every single major conference and discussion with ministers, discussions with foreign visitors to include some um, interesting uh, Brits and Americans like uh, S Senator Dole and uh, um, <coughs> Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld and um, uh, the MP from someplace in Britain named Galloway who claims that he didn't get any money, da-da-da-da. Uh, all of these were put on transcript. Now, the difficulty was that in terms of since no archivist went in to organize the stuff when it was taken out of Iraq to, uh, to uh, um, uh, Doha was that they basically very clearly filled the cardboard boxes with, oh, take some from here, we'll take some from here, we'll take some from here. So what we're getting in terms of transcripts is a completely idiosyncratic mixed up. Sometimes uh, you get a transcript of a meeting in 1982 where they're discussing that the Fall Peninsula is about to fall and the Iranians are beating the hell out of them and you're just about, up. Oh, transcript stops there. And the next tape, but the next tape isn't, the next tape is from 1989. So it's going to take a long time to piece it all together as to which ones of these. Uh, um, and, and by the way, mixed in with this, and, and so they're going to appear in the History Channel relatively soon, I think, some of them. Uh, where they've gotten and how they've gotten, I don't know. But uh, um, these were not just recordings. These were, these were VHSs, TVs. Uh, um, there's Saddam. There are the boys talking about uh, doing in the Kurds. You can identify who's enthusiastic about dropping, uh, for example, in 1991, uh, uh, <coughs> WMD on the Shia <laughs> uh, and putting down the March uh, April uh, uh, rebellion. We've now read enough of this stuff, so we're beginning to see pictures of the nature of this regime, both politically, militarily, and in terms of its external view of the world, at, and its plans. In fact, I would say perhaps we're at a point where when the German documents first began coming out into consciousness in the mid-1950s, where we can begin to sketch out what the overall plans and purposes of the regime were. Um, now, <clears throat> let me turn to a second subject before I come back to this, because this is the depressing part. We finished a draft briefing on the nature of the Iraqi resistance uh, um, uh, um, and the war from their perspective 
uh, in spring of 2004 and had a draft report done by early 2005, which it then took, uh, it literally took us only then about a uh, um, three or four months to get the intel agencies to scrub it and say, yes, um, all of this FUO uh, stuff is, uh, and we took all, the, had to take the, then all the secret pieces out. And one of the wonderful parts of the secret thing is any document is touched, even if it's a blank piece of paper by the CIA, it becomes automatically secret and can only be released by them. And I know the, how many of you have seen the New Republic article on what they've been reclassifying? So, uh, 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 stunning piece in terms of the incompetencies of the United States government. Um, reclassifying documents or pieces of documents that have already been published by the State Department in the foreign relations of the United States. Reclassifying documents that we've already not only made open to the public and researchers, but have published ourselves. Again, astonishing. Um, uh, once that was done, by the spring uh, of uh, 2005, we were ready to go and have, it took us a year to find somebody in Washington finally willing to release the report. It had no secret, no secret evidence in it at all. Um, was only um, uh, uh, F-O-U-O um, uh, for official use only, uh, only in the sense that there were no American stuff in it. But the problem in terms of the U.S. government, and here we come to the issue of incompetence in human affairs, my deep sense that has been only exacerbated and, 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 and hugely increased over the last 10 years that I've been working in Washington, is that nobody had the moral courage to actually say, after saying, this is a brilliant document, we've got to get it to the public, would you like to release it? Oh, no, I can't do that. Uh, you'll have to go see them. And literally nobody in the intelligence community, nobody in the State Department, nobody in the DOD, uh, this was briefed all the way up to the vice president's office, um, a, a, a document which, while it's largely on the Iraqi military, certainly gives some clear indications uh, as to the nature of this regime and why it was probably enormously beneficial to have removed this regime from, from power, not only for us but for the Iraqis. And yet nobody in Washington capable, and we had four, three-star three generals, four-star generals. We had the uh, deputy, uh, um, uh, the number two guy in the intelligence community, none of them capable of releasing it until finally the... Uh, um, uh, Negroponte finally said, this is enough bullshit, and we'll release it. Um, what <coughs> these documents make clear in the largest sense, and not just in our report, um, because, in fact, our report only really, really deals with, uh, with uh, 2001, 2002, 2003, uh, a number of really, really, I think, crucial insights into um, Iraqi attitudes, Iraqi policy, um, and a number of other issues. Um, from the point of view of the military side, what the documents make clear is that the Iraqis made no preparations to launch an insurgency for the very simple reason that the entire senior leadership 
led by Saddam Hussein, did not, did not believe the United States was, would dare to go to Baghdad. Flat out, absolutely, in terms of their readings of the international uh, situation over the previous six, uh, previous 15 years led them to believe the United States simply did not have it in it to, to, to launch a military drive uh, to Baghdad. So there were, in fact, no preparations for insurgency uh, aimed at a, a foreign invader. What preparations did occur, which is very interesting and provided, if you will, what one of my colleagues I think has quite correctly called Petri dishes, uh, is that the regime itself, looking at what happened in 1991, was not impressed by the uh, American uh, ground operations against uh, um, uh, Iraqi forces. Uh, by and large, their view was uh, um, <coughs> that uh, they had stood up successfully militarily against um, 32 nations, including the United States, uh, and that uh, we had not dared to go to Basra. Again, we thought we were ending the war as kind of a humanitarian gesture. Um, from their point of view, it showed that we were chicken and afraid even to go into the Shia districts. What really scared the hell out of them in 1991 was the rebellion that came afterwards. It is clear that, it, that Saddam's regime almost collapsed in 1991 in March and April. And um, that's what they were afraid of in terms of 2003 or any kind of major American confrontation. That a major American air campaign would again lead to a rebellion uh, of the Shia. Now, interestingly enough, of course, it wasn't just the Shia who revolted. There was only one province that did not revolt in 1991 to a considerable extent. And I think particularly for the military guys here, you will recognize that province. Al-Anbar province did not revolt. It was then given the title by Saddam of the Lion of Saddam, the province was, because they hadn't revolted. The only one in Iraq, which says a great deal about uh, about what happened. Um, looking at that, the Iraqi Saddam drew the conclusion that while he didn't have to fear an external rebellion, he had to fear an internal. So how was he going to prevent an internal rebellion as had happened in 1991? The first aim to prevent such a revolt from what was happening was to ensure that the local bath authorities had access to substantial weapons caches and were either organized or had access to local well-armed, uh, at least in terms of an insurgency, groups which were called um, the uh, um, uh, Saddam Fedayeen, uh, the Al-Quds Martyrs Brigades, which we all took to American military looking at this as another military organization to fight any external threat. In fact, these organizations were aimed at nipping internal rebellion uh, in the bud and the weapons caches scattered around the country. Now, actually, it's a very interesting incident. Um, where it almost got General Wallace fired. Wallace looked at the uh, Fedayeen uh, and the Al-Quds coming out of the city as a significant threat uh, 
um, that should be destroyed before moving on to Baghdad. Now, to a certain extent, he was looking at that in the short term um, uh, as a threat to, if you will, the coalition supply lines. In fact, of course, it was a long-term threat. Because what actually happened is, this, is the Al-Quds uh, and Saddam uh, 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 Fedayeen, who, who survived, <clears throat> then were in a situation, oh, by the way, they had no connections from city to city. They were all run from Baghdad by Kusay or by uh, um, Saddam's other dirtball son, whose name I've forgotten right now. Um, Uday, yes, fine human being. Um, <clears throat> No interconnections between Al-Samoa, for example, and Nazaria, between the Fedayeen. No connection. Again, this was a regime which did not want to have lateral connections um, anywhere in the country because lateral connections were things that they could not control and might actually result uh, in uh, a a, a coup or, or rebellion or whatever. What happened very clearly in terms of the insurgencies is Petri dishes cooked uh, in April, May, June, July, and August, and cooked. And because we had so few troops in Iraq, we did nothing about them. We did not understand the culture. We did not uh, get in connection with the tribes. We did not understand what was beginning to happen throughout Iraq. So we missed the intelligence picture. Um, Not everybody, but we missed the larger intelligence picture, which wasn't that an insurgency was forming because it was well-connected. It was the very disconnected nature, uh, uh, um, which was a result of Saddam's wanting it to be disconnected because its, its ori- original purpose was to crush the, uh, uh, any kind of major uh, um, internal uh, troubles and rebellion. Um, the uh, sort of a sideline along these, let me also add that um, this kind of belief that the United States would not come to Baghdad is a result of the regime's reading, not necessarily the military guys, because some military guys realized there was some real dangers out there, but the regime's reading of our performance um, uh, over the course of the period between uh, um, uh, the mid-1980s and 2003. To begin with the Stark incident, again, this is one of the tapes that has just Surfaced. It's very clear that the initial Iraqi, after they fired the Exocet um, uh, at any ship in the, in the Gulf and hit a U.S. destroyer, their expectations were that any, any tough guys, and quote Reagan was a tough guy, would have then come and smashed something in Iraq, like an airfield or an army division or whatever. We sent them a demarche, a message, and they thought it was hilarious. Americans, after we destroyed a destroyer, send us a message? A um, whole series of incidents, most of which you are familiar with. Um, the failure, uh, to, uh, the uh, de- decision to stop the war after 100 hours, the drive on to, um, uh, the failure to drive on to Basra to cut off the Republican guards. Um, Somalia. Um, pull out after 19, they regarded as an absolutely incredible piece of cowardice. So in looking at American behavior, the fact that we were unwilling to commit troops in the uh, uh, confrontation with Serbia, indicated to them that we were a complete paper tiger. 
Um, and then, of course, you have to understand this is a regime which did not uh, – the rewards for telling the truth of this regime were often uh, not exactly what truth they – takers like you could get shot thrown in jail tortured any number of horrible things could happen this was not a regime which so when u.s forces bounced up uh the euphrates shielding each one of the cities nazaria uh, samoa hillel basically setting up blocking positions to keep the the locals from coming up and inter, uh, interdicting the supply lines they viewed that as a series of major victories for Iraqi forces. And so when Baghdad Bob was announcing on television that they were slaughtering us, that's the word he was getting from the field. Because the locals were not about to say, oh, we don't think things are going so well down here, because the reward for telling the truth like that would have been immediate. Uh, and if you were lucky, you were just going to go back to your village. Um, in addition, um, one of the documents that underlines the complete lack of, of unreality is that as late as, I think it's the 2nd or 3rd of April, the Iraqi government instructed its ambassador at the UN to tell the Chinese and the, Soviet, and the Russians not to seek a, a, a ceasefire because, quote, they were winning the war. It's the 2nd of April. Karbala was about to go down the tubes. I think we have... Uh, um, I think you're a major now, aren't you? I've heard uh, um, uh, things were not looking really good for the Iraqis on the battlefront, but from from the boys in Baghdad, they thought they were winning, and that I think underlines again this kind of nature of what kind of a tyranny, an extraordinary tyranny. It makes even Stalin's Russia in '41 look competent. Um, in terms of the nature of the regime, let me extend this this a little bit to uh, let me extend it first to the nature of Saddam's world. There are some wonderful pieces in here in terms of a a, uh, a view of the world which is not only uh, paranoid, megalomaniacal, and largely ignorant. It makes your average American high school student look like a genius in history, which is saying a huge amount at present. Uh, um, Many of you will be happy to know, according to Saddam, that uh, the destruction of Baghdad in 1258 by the Mongols was a result of the, inter uh, the, um, uh, the international Jewish conspiracy's persuasion of the Mongols to go south instead of west. Uh, or many of you will probably be, be surprised to learn, but this was passed along to Saddam, uh, that... Um, the Pokemon craze was actually sponsored by the International Jewish Conspiracy because Pokemon means I am Jewish in Hebrew. <laughs> Saddam's world, and again, part of the difficulty is that if Iraqi documents are boring, Saddam's, Saddam's uh, tapes, for the most part, um, make Adolf Hitler's table talk look like a group of Nobel Prize laureates discussing history, which is, again, for those of you who've written, read any German history, it's an extraordinary. But mixed in with it are sudden pieces of illumination, of evil, and the capacity of incompetent, evil people. Although, let me, let me stay, stress this. Saddam Hussein was an enormously competent dictator in keeping what we're now discovering is a diverse, fractious, murderous society together in one not exactly happy camp, but one camp. Um, 
The nature of the regime in terms of criminal behavior, um, and to me one of the most astonishingly, which is going to be my next point, sad comments on the state of the U.S. government today, uh, is that the criminal discussions within the regime to include using WMD chemical against the Shia in 1991. Not just against the Kurds in 1986 and 87, not just against the Iranians killing them by the bucketful, um, but using uh, chemicals uh, um, which were used against the Shia uh, in, 19, uh, uh, in 1991, spring of 1991. To me, this evidence indicating kind of regime is should be out there in the forefront of, of, if you will, the battle of ideas. And while we don't see much of it, every once in a while NBC presents Saddam giving a, a diatribe, um, uh, which we set, find very funny and very ignorant. Not aimed at us. Not aimed at the West. It's aimed at the Arab world. And what I see, at least as a historian, is a replication of Adolf Hitler's use of the 1924 trial in Munich to turn a judicial uh, uh, trial to his full advantage and to present his point of view and, if you will, to fully poison the well. We have, unlike the 1924 situation, a huge propaganda uh, um, uh, situation with these documents. And let me follow... First of all, what they suggest about his thinking, and then come back to um, uh, the current st state of releasing them uh, in terms of the United States American bureaucracy. Um, we've just found, literally in the last month and a half, an absolutely fascinating document, which Saddam, 1979, is still vice president, still has not taken over. So immediately after the uh, Camp David agreements have been signed. And basically what Saddam argues, and here we're dealing almost with something that looks like the Hossback Memorandum in terms of following Iraqi policy after that. Saddam basically says the Egyptians have taken themselves out of the leadership of the Islamic world and will keep them there in terms of their agreement with the Israelis. Um, what we... Uh, what we need to do is, first of all, to establish Iraq as the great leader of the Islamic world, is to give the Persians a good bashing. And once we've established our credibility as the protector, if you will, of, of Arab civilization uh, in the east, we can turn uh, to the west with the aim, very clearly, of creating a unified Arab world. And again, in terms of the, sort of the astonishing assumptions that are made here, the underlying brief is very clearly, and this is 1979-80, a unified Arab world will be as powerful as the Soviet Union or the United States. That, by the way, is in bin Laden's reading of things, too. Put us all together, and we will automatically become as powerful uh, as the United States. We will be a true superpower. Um, what then happens, again, in terms of the documents, of course, is, is that in the 1980s, uh, Iraq discovers itself in a really nasty war, 
The Persians don't roll quite as easily as the uh, Iraqis had hoped, nor does the rest of the Arab world sort of come running to support Saddam's efforts to, if you will, uh, um, stamp uh, out the Persian danger. Um, uh, in fact, uh, only money is provided. But by 1988, enough casualties uh, have been inflicted on the Iranians that the Iranians eventually quit. Um, and Saddam then turns to the West. And here the documents are absolutely fascinating in sort of two major points. First of all, the move against Kuwait has always been seen from our point of view as an effort to fix his financial problems. Not true. Documents make it very clear in terms of transcripts that Saddam was seeking a confrontation in 1990 with the United States with the belief that Iraq would come out the winner and drive the United States out of the Middle East. Again, from our point of view, it's absolutely bizarre. But it's there. It's what they believed. It's their view of the external world. In the larger sense, and we have all these conversations with uh, external Arabs and, and Saddam as well, it's very clear that not just Saddam and his cohorts, but a substantial pe- number of the people who, who, who believe him have no understanding, if you will, of the nature of what has been created in the West or is now being created in China, of the complexity um, um, uh, 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 and, if you will, toughness of people outside. In fact, only the superficial uh, things uh, such as Baywatch appear to uh, attract their attention. Um, And along these lines, again, when the war was over in 1990, uh, 91, um, the view was that they had won the war because they had stood up to us and 32 countries, as Saddam said, uh, and we had not even dared to go to Basra, which was uh, 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 much less an Nazaria, which were the strongholds of the Shia. Um, let me also say that there are some insights in this very clearly in terms of uh, what I find particularly worrisome uh, is it's clear that Saddam, in talking about nuclear weapons with, among other people, Yasser Arafat, this is one of those really bizarre conversations. This occurs about 1989. Um, Arafat, uh, and this says a great deal, um, is the reasonable one in the conversation. Where Saddam is talking about the need for <clears throat> the Arab world to get nuclear weapons so they can use them on Israel. And Arafat says... Well, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's right, but, you know, they got a lot of them, too, and they could really wreck our world. And so, nah, 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 nah. And what, what I think is particularly worrisome about the remarks of the current president of Iran is exactly the same line. If we nuke them, they're done for. And they could only kill a few of us. Now, if you know anything about the sort of Israeli response that would come, it would not be killing a few of them. It would be the entire destruction of the Middle East. Um, and so the casual, if you will, um, sloppiness, uh, all we can, I think, uh, be uh, uh, thankful uh, for, one of the major things we can be thankful for is they did not get the bomb before things went up. Now let me turn to sort of the last part of this. 
which is, um, what are we doing with all this information, all these documents? The answer is nothing. The uh, Ambassador Negroponte decided, finally got sick of the bureaucratic uh, quibbling and uh, desire to get a piece of the action and prevent any action from taking place. said, okay, put them all. The documents are going to be put on the web, all of them. And <laughs> in terms of sort of wonderful moments, that also released our report, which mentioned in one little place that two Iraqis talking to each other, one of them had said, hey, the Russians, uh, Russian um, uh, defense attaché has provided us with wonderful information on American plans, which you could then put the subtext in, which you got from CNN. Well, that caused a, you know, we didn't even, looking at our stuff, th think that this could cause an international incident. <clears throat> um, it did. Um, the Russians immediately said, hey, we didn't do that. We didn't talk to them. Nobody in Russia would ever talk to them. Who could believe that we Russians would ever talk to the Arabs? Um, uh, the, uh, vice, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff made the most bizarre remark of all in terms of future potential of an information uh, campaign using this stuff. He said, well, could be forgeries. <laughs> Not forgeries. We got, we got 600,000 documents. If the U.S. government made a major effort to forge this stuff, given the competence of the U.S. government, we would now have 10 documents. <laughs> we would have another 50 years before we created 100 years even using computers. And given the fact that nobody in the U.S. government speaks Arabic, um, God knows how long it would take. Um, the response to that was immediately then everybody in Washington drew back. If you go to the website that was created, you'll now see for the last three weeks as they've been putting lots of wonderful pictures of AK-47s and T-72s and family gatherings and no documents are going on. They're now arguing among themselves that they have to translate all these documents to make sure that uh, they're okay. Uh, and they're translated accurately. We said, well, we have translated and spent about two, three million dollars of the Joint Advanced Warfighting Program translating these documents, and we can identify probably 300 or 400, which will keep the international community bloggers and people uh, in Al Jazeera occupied for the next three years in their excitement. Um, no, no, we have to translate these documents ourselves, and we don't want any advice from you. Um, so everything is sitting there. The information campaign uh, in the Islamic world uh, is being run by Karen Hughes, that great genius of historical knowledge and uh, uh, international affairs. I guess the best I can sum up in terms of uh, sort of the megalomania that is alive and well in the Middle East, just as it has been in Western society, uh, oftentimes in the 20th century, Early in 1990, before the big crisis, the Gulf War began, Saddam talking to an interlocutor from uh, um, uh, the external Arab world, <coughs> um, the interlocutor comments, it's time to recreate the caliphate <laughs> and, under your leadership. And Saddam's reply is, not quite time yet to, to announce it. <laughs> Luckily for us, we have him. My guess is that uh, he will not survive Iraqi justice, um, but in terms of uh, winning the information battle, 
the whole way we have set up this trial, our whole um, absolutely uh, troglodytic unwillingness to look at these documents as a hugely advantageous method of influencing people at least to, um, and again, I, I, those of you who heard me last year, I have not been happy with the performance of the post-conflict phase, which I think has been put everything in danger. But in terms of justifying this war, these documents are about as good as the Bush administration will ever, ever get. And like a cuckoo, it's sitting on them probably for the next two years. I'll take any questions. Well, once we've copied them, I mean, I have no objection to that. We can ship them all back. Actually, uh, some of the documents we have passed along to the uh, uh, portions of the U.S. government which are providing uh, um, uh, documents for Saddam's trial, um, whether they'll be used or not. Um, but again, I, 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 hey, they're, they're learning from us. and We're doing such an extraordinarily bad job in information operations, which is the current euphemism for, for propaganda. Uh, and the, the belief in Washington is propaganda is a really terrible word. We never, would never do propaganda in the United States. Well, what the hell do we do in World War II? You know, sometimes propaganda can be the truth. And the truth doesn't hurt um, if it's used effectively. Um, but again, uh, I used to think that Central Ohio was an ahistorical community. You have no idea what an ahistorical community is until you go to Washington. Yes? Which, which, which officials? I, I can't remember their names. They're close to Shirai. I mean, two senior ones. Uh, have you come across any other evidence of bribery? Uh, Again, here's the difficulty with the documents uh, and releasing stuff like that. Is that, now, uh, I will mention one case which is very interesting, which I'd like to see the case, which we could, is that when it's Iraqis talking to each other, you have, absolutely have to understand the society which nobody is necessarily telling the truth. In fact, uh, one of the individuals may just be telling a flat-out lie to another individual. And so to release this stuff as the truth, not that the government doesn't deserve everything it's going to get from French voters in the near future. Um, uh, but again, I think we have to be very, very careful about releasing that stuff without putting all sorts of caveats around it because we have no way to authenticate and I would, in fact, put that out with a, with, a, with a major warning on it, that, in fact, these two Iraqis talking to each other saying they gave X amounts of money. Now, we have, however, and I won't mention his name, but you can guess, a British politician of the left, identified by the name of the documents, and, in fact, there he is on tape talking to Saddam, um, saying to Saddam, saying that that oil voucher that he had received, or had, since oil prices had gone down, um, were uh, uh, not the amount of money that he, so he needed some more oil vouchers uh, from the Iraqi government so he could get the money that he'd been promised uh, in terms of, now he has lied to the Congress of the United States, um, as well as in Britain, um, if he were to come back to the United States, we could try him and send him to jail for perjury because it's flat out evidence of perjury. And there the, you have the individual's face and the individual saying those things. We know of practice, the CIA, electronic doctor, the doctor. <laughs> Yeah. 
besides, say, you know, bureaucratic intransigence, the, the reason why the, the government isn't more forceful about trying to publish this for the fear of getting egg on their faces and, you know, oh, look, here's the, here's the reason we went this rate and that. Again, something. we have, uh, um, and we've been working on this stuff for two years, and the guys I'm working with are on their way to getting PhDs at the University of Leeds. Um, as cheaply as you get them here at Ohio State as opposed to Yale and Harvard. Um, uh, 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 we, we can give them the documents that can, huge numbers of documents that, that are perfectly capable of going on the World Wide Web and not having any of those ambiguities. Um, and we've gone through very carefully annotated. Uh, um, and the stuff we work with has both translation on one side and English, uh, yeah, English translation on one side and, and the Arabic on the other. So very easy to go back and check for the veracity of, of, uh, of uh, what's said. And uh, um, the Harmony document, uh, if it's a particularly uh, such as this individual, um, you could go back to Doha and get the actual tape uh, on which this uh, uh, was said so, so that... Uh, you know, you could you could prove it all through. Um, my explanation is that, and this goes back to the whole issue of bureaucracies and incompetence, is that most people in the bureaucracy don't want to take a risk of doing anything. Uh, Bomber Harris, not my favorite character, for those who've read my history, had one very good policy, which was, if you said, when a, when a proposal came up from below, if you said no, you have to justify it the same way your answer of no and pass it on up the same way you did uh, if you approved something. So this meant that the bureaucrat was going to be on the spot. If he said no, he had to say, this idea of de developing a bomb to take down dams is a really stupid idea, blah, 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 blah. He, he was going to be as exposed for being a stupid idiot as if he said yes. So you actually have to, have to make a decision. Whereas one of the safest bureaucratic means of avoiding decisions is just simply to say, no. Yeah? Any uh, conversations with Al-Qaeda? Uh, not with Saddam. What's interesting is uh, um, lots of stuff, and this is again Sasha administration, um, lots of very clear dealings and working with uh, uh, other terrorist groups, uh, and some very clear uh, initial contacts between Al Qaeda and the and, and uh, the Iraqis in the early uh, 21st century, 2000, 2001, which clearly both sides are exploring whether um, uh, the enemy of
support. This causes huge economic problems. And Saddam was um, really wanted to get sanctions off his back end. And, and uh, one of the ways to get sanctions off his back was to get the WMD. So I don't have the official date now. Ninety-five, I think it is. He clearly said, "Okay, boys, that's enough. Get rid of them all." Maybe ninety-four. Uh, and so they got a major program to get rid of the stuff as fast as they can. And again, got to understand means a huge amount of sloppiness. No record keeping, not the stuff in the diaries, all the kinds of things that you would get in terms of any normal bureaucracy. Not just picking on Iraqi incompetence here. But any normal bureaucracy, oh, the boss would say, okay, we'll get rid of it all. Okay. Now, then, uh, uh, a number of senior Iraqis were not sure that it really meant everybody, because, of course, then his son in law fled. And they had the big contracts in 95, where the son started squawking about all of what they'd been doing, how they'd been lying and cheating. So the son again says, get rid of it all, get rid of it all, we're going to get rid of it all. Um, and, and then the problem
study uh, by the people who study uh, 
WMDs. Again, what's wrong with the Washington bureaucracy? They turned it out as a massive academic report in which the really important parts don't occur until volume two. And if you know anything about media, you say the idea that you would actually get to the second volume, much less past the first ten pages. Again, the evidence is so poorly marshaled in that. I've read that report, and it is an exceedingly unexciting, boring, stupid report with all sorts of mindless stuff covering it up. Uh, but uh, um, uh, the WMD report published by the U.S. government has, is, is worth the pain of going through it if you want want to understand the WMD problem. And the problem wasn't that they had it. The problem was that they were going to get the capabilities really quickly. And what, now again, of course, this was a moment of time, but none of your responsibility was Criminal irresponsibility. Uh, again, it's Bruce and Rudy Zuber. Again, this is the kind of case where, where because this regime is so interested in spinning things, that instead of waiting for the evidence to come in and make the argument, we were wrong, but, which the president could have done, he's not bothered to really have the facts assembled for him to make the kind of case that would make, make his position look both understandable and more reasonable. Uh, yeah, we'll take some. Here in the well, back there. Yeah. I want to ask you about the Fedeen. Uh, in the first Gulf War, there was planning and a great concern about the possibility that Kuwait uh, City might be defended by a few hundred or a few thousand years of fighters and the rest of the city might fall apart. And you'd have a suburban uh, warfare, which would end up in a death to destroy Kuwait City in order to save it. That's a big concern. And it didn't happen. Thank you. 
also rather interesting in all of this is that through 1990, again, this is a version of the Through 1990, Saddam basically believes that, that he, he can blow up the tribes. In fact, the new Iraq uh, that he is creating makes the tribes irrelevant. So basically, he does no fiddling with the, with the tribes, basically is squash them down. What he discovers in 1991 in terms of rebellion is the tribes are real important. So. And so from 1991 on, a substantial portion of Saddam's efforts are an effort to win back the loyalty of the, or to ensure that the senior leaders of the tribes are <laughs> uh, in the right camp and so, so that the tribes won't fall into this insurgent mode. Uh, what we discovered, of course, was Ambassador Brenner arrived, said, hey, tribes are bad, we won't deal with it. And it took us a year to discover tribes are real important. They still have an enormous cultural and, and political connection to uh, the people of Iraq. And so once it's, it's, it's taken us uh, until very recently to, to begin to revamp the connections with the tribes who would have been there if we had recognized them and treated them intelligently in the very beginning. Because they were the one element that still remained relatively intact after we got through getting rid of the police, the army, the bureaucracy, and everything else. And we paid no attention to them. Again, in retrospect, Brett was a catastrophe. I mentioned that uh, he and I and Vice President Cheney all arrived in New Haven in the fall of 1959. Um, Mr. Cheney and I spent our first year in the way out of New Haven. I failed. Mr. Cheney succeeded. Uh, Bill took me on better things. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that uh, Iraqi military officials were reluctant to report what was really happening during uh, the last Gulf War. Is that also true for the first Gulf War and the Iran-Iraq War? And what did Saddam do with these officers? In the Iran-Iraq yeah. war. Saddam was forced to, uh, like Stalin in 41, increase the level of military competence in the, uh, uh, in the senior levels of the Iraqi military, which he almost immediately then got criticized and were probably connected. Along these lines, let me in terms of the, sort of the, the nature of people in this regime, the head of the Republican Guards, uh, we have three or four different testimonies in general, was picked. Because he was the stupidest general officer available, was a known drunk. B, uh, C was too too dumb to connect with any uh, other fighters, uh, and C and D was well, uh, finally uh, uh, on national support was his creed. And yeah, again, from our perspective, in terms of military competence, again, if you want, in terms of understanding third world military, uh, mostly. Gregor Knox's book, uh, Loosely Unleashed, is a wonderful study uh, on the kinds of political factors that go into creating a military that is totally inept in an external sense uh, and very efficient at killing people in basics. Yeah? Have you discovered anything concerning uh, Saddam's intentions towards 
going on full bore, both in terms of the Iraqi government smuggling in huge amounts of stuff, particularly after the oil for peace program came in. And one of the ways Saddam kept the tribes loyal was to give them lots of arms and lots of SUVs smuggled in uh, from uh, down that, the rat line coming in, which is, you know, since it goes back to Roman times. Now, this has been an area of huge smuggling operations, which we really only recently have really put a major effort
ruts running from the ammunition dumps right down to the river, in some cases trucks stuck in the mud of the river, where they're clearly driving trucks down, throwing on horses or whatever, and moving around the river. And three years later, we've got no capabilities to do that because we don't do that.
the evidence is pretty clear in, in, in I think the last one was easy to answer, uh, is the Gulf War was over so quickly, and then the rebellion came so quickly. I think the Iraqis were looking at the Gulf War as a replay of the war against Iran. We had that, the war, you know, uh, results in a World War One solid front, massive troops fighting against each other, and then we'll really get them with our sarin and our various other stuff that we have. Got 100 days, it's over, boom. The divisions that are in, in that are running away from the KPO, they've disappeared, uh, and then the Iraqis don't have time to think about us because they have their own locals. And they are just worse than music. They did use uh, uh, at least mustard gas. We have some suspicion they use sarin against the, uh, against, uh, the Shia rebels. And that's a major factor in their ability to put down the revolt. Because here's the problem with that. Was that in the first Gulf War, we destroyed most of the bridges. So they found it very difficult to deploy their military around. So if you accomplish, which Schwarzkopf comes with all kinds of stupidity, let them keep. Yeah, we're, we're, we're using uh, mustard gas and sarin against the locals. This time is really interesting. Saddam decided, uh, we decided not to make bridges down, because we wanted to have guys like the major here zipping over the bridges. The Iraqis decided not to make the bridges down because they wanted to have the bridges available to go put the revolt down. <laughs> so uh, um, uh, virtually no full, complete uh, uh, major bridges across have been bought. The, the ones that, uh, in terms of Karbala, where we ran into some problems, they were, uh, they, the core commander there was clearly the only competent one and made some real efforts to try and uh, uh, mine the bridge. Since the board has undermined it, not because they like Saddam, but because they liked him and they're afraid if they blew up a bridge that uh, he'd be killed by Saddam for the same bridge. One more. Did, yeah. did, is it too late to I think it's too late in terms of the U.S. military to put that kind of force structure in. We could have put that kind of force structure in uh, in, uh, in uh, 2003 because most of the force structure had been used up. Uh, so we could have put we could have put 350,000 troops in one of the National Guard with a full understanding that you guys are there for a year and then we'll start taking out and we'll replace you. Um, but it's going to be at least a year, year and a half tour, and we'll try to do as many things as we can to bring guys home on leave. But for example, major cities like Fallujah, uh, uh, Fallujah saw a company at the 82nd for like four or five days. Then they didn't see anybody that then saw a troop from uh, one of the cab squads, I think, of the third infantry. Uh, but from Fallujah, I think, you know, some little bits of pieces every once in a while come through. There's no sense among Particularly, and this is again where we're paying attention to the layout of the land, in the Sunni areas there's no sense except around Baghdad and Karbala to be. Of course, the fourth ID didn't come from the north, which would have given us the advantage of having the fourth ID smash up the creek, which really deserved to be smashed up. In fact, most of the Iraqis are asking, I didn't even do that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, one she, more. She's a 1980. One more. Say the 600,000 documents that throw out the state is really big. 200,000 are guarded. 
pictures of Saddam, <laughs> pictures of Saddam with decree, pictures of Saddam with Shia, pictures of Saddam riding a horse, pictures of Saddam, you know, absolute worthless stuff. Uh, but there are probably about uh, 400,000 documents, including the uh, various transcripts that need to be brought through seriously, and we probably want to do that we don't, we figured out how to use the Harmonian database because people did a very rough sort of look at it. So we can say, okay, this stuff looks like it'd be really interesting. And so we'll get a translate. Again, in terms of the US government and companies with foreign languages, we have people with foreign languages doing that. You can now ask your questions independently. Thank you very much for your words.